Welcome to this podcast from Harvest Community Church of Huntersville, North Carolina, where our vision is to make disciples who make disciples. I'm your host, Liz Stefanini. How many of you enjoy going to the beach in the summertime? Can I see your hand? I I know I do. And, And there's an experience that probably... Almost all of us have had, you know, you're at the beach and you go out in the water, right? And there on the shore, you've left some towels or beach chairs or maybe people, right? And you're just out in the water and you're, you know, jumping up, trying to jump over the waves or dive through them or ride in them or whatever. And you just kind of, for a few minutes, kind of forget what's going on. And then all of a sudden you look up. And the people or the chairs or the towels that were right there are now way over there, right? You, you have drifted in the tide. And think, think about how you drift just in a few minutes. What if you stayed there an hour or two hours or all day? The tide has taken you away. And what happens at the beach physically can easily happen spiritually to all of us in this ocean of thoughts and ideas and competing values and views in our society, we can easily drift away from Jesus Christ. And that is why that we need to read and study And understand and think about and apply the words that we have recorded in our New Testament that we know as the book of Hebrews. And Lord willing, that's what we're going to do starting today. For several months, we're going to be walking through this New Testament epistle and it starts with these great words right in the past god spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways but in these last days he has spoken to us by his son whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the universe. The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. Now, since we're starting uh, a brand new book of the Bible today, I wanted to give you a little introduction, a brief introduction to the book itself. Uh, it's, it's very brief. There's a lot more that could be said, but let's think about it. Let's think about the author. Let's think about who wrote the book of Hebrews. This author was steeped in the Old Testament. He knew the Old Testament well. He was likely a Hellenistic Jew who had become a Christian 
in the second generation, not in the generation in which Jesus himself lived, because we have chapter 2, verse 3 that I'll allude to in a minute that talks about hearing it from those who heard Jesus. He had a good education, judging from the type of Greek that he uses. It's uh, New Testament was written in the Greek language, and this is a very... Uh, uh, has a, the vocabulary and style of the Greek language here in Hebrews is, is pretty, is pretty high. And so some suggestions have been made. Historically, the earliest suggestion in the church was, was the apostle Paul in the fourth century. Uh, Eusebius referred to Paul's 14 epistles and well known and undisputed. And he was referring to the 13 letters that we have in the Bible that says, that has Paul's name on it. And he included Hebrews with it. But he did note that even then, there were people who doubted uh, Pauline authorship. Is Paul the author of Hebrews? I don't think so. Uh, he doesn't. Na- it would be the only one of his 14 letters, if there were 14 that we have recorded, that doesn't include his name. The style and vocabulary is very different than Paul. Although that, that in itself is not a disqualifier. But chapter 2 verse 3 that I mentioned a minute ago says, This salvation which was first announced by the Lord was confirmed to us by those who heard him. It's not likely that Paul would say something like that. It's, it's not impossible, but it's not likely. Then another suggestion that's been fairly popular is Luke. You know, Luke wrote the Gospel of Luke. Luke wrote the book of Acts. And there's similarities between the Greek that is we find in Luke-Acts and in Hebrews. So uh, an early leader, Clement of Alexandriana, or of Alexandria, who died in 215, suggested that maybe Paul wrote it in Hebrew, and then Luke came along and translated it in Greek, and that's what we have here. Now, we do know that Luke was associated with Paul and therefore with Timothy. And Timothy is mentioned in chapter 13 of Hebrews, so it's possible. But it's still very challenging. You still have the same challenge with Paul, or maybe Luke himself actually wrote it. Another suggestion that's been made is Barnabas. Uh, in Acts chapter 4, there's this man named Barnabas, and it says in Acts 4.36, it gives us the definition of Barnabas' name, the son of encouragement. And he was also a Levite. So some people have said, ah, he, had, he would have been very familiar with the Old Testament. He was encouragement. And Hebrews 13.22, the writer of Hebrews says, I urge you to bear with my word of encouragement. And so they've said, based on that, maybe it was Barnabas. It could be. It's hard to assign an entire epistle to somebody based on one word, though. And let me give one more suggestion, and that is the name Apollos. Acts chapter 18 describes who Apollos was. Meanwhile, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was a learned man with a thorough knowledge of the scriptures. 
He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and he spoke with great fervor and taught about Jesus accurately, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue. When Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they invited him to their home and explained to him the way of God more adequately. When Apollos wanted to go to Achaia, the brothers and sisters encouraged him and wrote to the disciples there to welcome him. When he arrived, he was a great help to those who by grace had believed, for he vigorously refuted the Jewish opponents in public debate, proving from the scriptures that Jesus was the Messiah. So think about the facts that we just learned about Apollos. He, he, that might make him a candidate for Hebrews. He was Jewish. He was eloquent. He was mighty in the Old Testament scriptures. He was fervent in spirit. He taught about Jesus accurately. He was an apologist and he did not see Christ. All right. Are you ready for the answer for me to tell you once and for all who wrote Hebrews? It is difficult to say with certainty, but if you if I was for, if you had a gun to my hand and said, look, you got to tell me who wrote Hebrews right now, I think I would say, I, I like the idea of Apollos. That's just a thought. It's just an idea. It's not certain. My more certain thing is this. In the third century, the church father Origen was discussing who wrote Hebrews and he said, who wrote the epistle? In truth, God knows. And I think that's where we sit with the the epistle of Hebrews. We don't have the name of the author. We're not sure who wrote it. All of these ones I've given you, and there are others, uh, are possible. But we don't know. We do know that the readers knew the author. And so let's think about who these readers were. They were Jewish Christians who had been persecuted. We know that from chapter 10. And they potentially were drifting based on several of the warnings that we get in the letter, and they were tempted to apostatize. Now, I've used a word there that you're going to hear a lot in this series. It's the word apostasy. That is the the verbal form there, to apostatize. What does it mean to commit apostasy? Or what does it mean to apostatize? Apostasy is this, a deliberate and permanent rejection of Christ and returning to or remaining within Judaism. Now, remember, these first readers, they were Jewish, and there were many, many, all the first Christians were Jewish Christians. And it was the full expression of Judaism. It wasn't like it had to be two different systems. But there were people within the older system who were putting pressure on some of these newer Christians who were Jewish and saying, oh, no, you need to come back to your roots. And so as a result, they were being persecuted. They were, their family, families were turning their backs on them. And, and some of them were suffering in other ways that we'll see as we go through the letter. This is who they were. They were in a struggle for their faith, their newfound faith. Well, so why was Hebrews written? Let's do one more background sort of thing. What are the purposes? There's, there are two purposes, two major purposes. There's a theological purpose and a practical purpose. The theological purpose is to demonstrate that Jesus Christ, as God's final word to humanity, is superior to all. 
And we're going to see that over and over and over through the book of Hebrews. Jesus is better than, better than, better than. In fact, that's one of the key words in the book of Hebrews. Christ is better than. And then you see the chapters listed there. Better than the angels, than Moses, than Joshua, than Aaron, than Melchizedek. His covenant is better than the old one. His tabernacle is better than the old one. And his sacrifice is better than the old one. Christ is better. And this author is emphasizing that. But there is also a practical purpose. And that is to prevent these readers from apostatizing and to encourage them to persevere in their Christian life and to grow into maturity. They, they had started out well, and yet many of them were weak now spiritually, and they were tempted just to kind of turn their backs on Christ. And they were tempted in, in the ocean of thought that was true in the first century to just drift away from the Lord. Our ocean of thought is different than the first century, but through this series, we're going to see some some parallels, and we're going to see that we have a lot of thoughts and views in our culture and issues in our culture that can cause us to drift away too. And so, therefore, Hebrews is very, very relevant to us. Today... When somebody decides to follow Christ, today, this is a special day at, at Harvest. We're going to, at the conclusion of this service, we're going to baptize five people who have come to faith in Jesus Christ and they're going to declare their faith in Christ. And usually when that happens today, there's a whole lot of support from friends and church family and family members. But sometimes people get pushback from it, even from people that are close to them. These people in Hebrews got a lot of pushback. They were, they were tempted to, to, to just reject it all. So let's look at these three verses today, the first three verses again. Let me read them again for us, and then we'll just... Uh, make some comments on them as we walk through. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he has appointed heir of all things. And through whom he also made the universe. The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. And right away we see two reasons why the revelation that is given through Jesus is superior. Right away, he starts with a contrast. He contrasts the former revelation in the Old Testament through the prophets with the new revelation that has come through Jesus. And there, there are two reasons why the one given through Jesus is superior. And first of all, it's because revelation given through the prophets was piecemeal and incomplete. It was piecemeal. And it was incomplete. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets. And then what's written last in English is it's it's first in the original. And it's in the emphatic position at many times and in various ways. 
So all through the Old Testament, this revelation came. It came in a lot of different ways. It came through a lot of different times. The first word yield stresses the, the, the ongoing nature of it, the piecemeal nature of it. It, it like the sense of in many portions or a little bit at a time. And there was variety. Think about it. You look at the second one. It came in many ways. So you're getting the, the timing aspect and the piecemeal aspect, but then the variety of ways that revelation came in the Old Testament. Think about how God spoke to the prophets and through the prophets in the Old Testament. So to the prophets, for instance, he spoke in a storm and thunder to Moses, but he spoke in a still, small voice to Elijah. In speaking through the prophets, some prophets spoke God's words orally. There were prophets that would walk around and say, this is what the Lord says, and they would give a prophecy. There were writing prophets who we have a written record of what they said, but then there were some prophets who actually acted things out without words. And this was prophetic. So, for instance, Jeremiah smashed jars. Ezekiel baked over human waste. And Isaiah walked around naked for three years. I'm glad I'm a pastor and not a prophet. (laughs) The piecemeal and incomplete nature of this revelation is what is being stressed. So that's what revelation was in the Old Testament. It was piecemeal. It was incomplete. In contrast, now we come in verses 2 and 3 to see the revelation through Jesus, rather than being piecemeal and incomplete, it is climactic. And it is complete so in the past, God spoke to our prophets through the, or to our ancestors through the prophets at many times in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Boom. <laughs> That's well, boom. I don't think it's there in original language, but I'm saying boom. That's the idea. It happened. Boom. To, here comes the revelation this way, this way, this way, piecemeal, little here, little there. We add it. We add it. We add it. We add it. All of a sudden, everybody say it with me. Boom. Oh, you're good. You're listening. That's good. So we got the two stages. The the past is the Old Testament. The last days is the fulfillment in the New Testament. So revelation in the Bible comes progressively. Now, you and I today, we have the Bible. We have it all here. But at that time, it... It was still in the process of being revealed to them in the first century. And so all of the revelation wasn't there. Think about, think thousands of years before that. If you get into the Old Testament, revelation, there was a little bit, and there was a little bit more, and there's a little bit more, and a little bit more, and now we've got an Old Testament. And then here comes the New Testament, and it's a little bit more, and now we have it. All. So it, it's progressive, and it developed progressively. I, I do want to make this point really clear. F.F. Bruce uh, talks about progressive revelation from the Old Testament and the New Testament, what it does not mean and what it does mean. So for instance, it does not mean that the Old Testament is less true and the New Testament is more true. It does not mean that 
the Old Testament is less worthy and the New Testament is more worthy. It doesn't mean that. What it does mean is that the Old Testament was the promise and the New Testament is the fulfillment. So everything in the Old Testament was pointing forward to something, or I really should say to someone. (laughs) And so out of all this revelation, all this revelation that keeps happening and it keeps happening and it keeps happening all through the centuries. And now God says, you know what? I am going to give you the perfect final revelation. Here it is. What's the word? Boom. (laughs) That was not in my notes, I promise you. (laughs) In these last days, that means more than just recently. Um, It implies the end times that that, that are being inaugurated. It's an inaugurated eschatology. The, The Old Testament promises looked forward to things that would happen in the end times. And when Jesus came, that was the beginning of the fulfillment. It was inaugurated then. And you contrast the piecemeal, incomplete revelation with the final, completed, perfect revelation. You contrast the revelation that came through prophets with the revelation that came through a son and it's different in quality it's different in finality and we're going to soon learn in these verses that this son is highly exalted and equal to God the father and that's why this revelation is God's last final word to humanity So at this point in the beginning, the author is more concerned about who Jesus is than actually what he said. We're going to get to that very soon. There's an implicit contrast between these Old Testament prophets and Jesus. As Raymond Brown put it, and let's take three prophets, for instance, Ezekiel portrayed the glory of God, but Christ reflected it. Isaiah expounded the nature of God as holy, righteous, and merciful, but Christ manifested it. Jeremiah described the power of God, but Christ displayed it. You see what's happening here? And so in these next two verses, this is what's happening, and this is on your outline sheet. Jesus is greater. (laughs) We're going to be following that. And we see that he was the heir of everything. He created the universe. He reflects the glory of God. He bears the stamp of God's nature. He sustains the universe. He provided purification for sins. And he is seated at God's right hand. And it just builds and builds and builds. And keep that in your mind. It's on your paper, so it'll be hard to to lose because we're also going to talk about the way, the literary way some emphasis are being made after we walk through these statements. So let's consider these statements about Jesus. He's the heir of everything. In these last days, he's spoken to us through his son, whom he appointed heir of all things. 
This echoes the words addressed to the Lord's anointed and God's son in Psalm 2, verse 8. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. Everything that God owns, Jesus owns also. He is the heir of all things. He created the universe through whom he made the universe. Genesis 1 is really clear in teaching us that God created the universe, right? And other passages elaborate on the agency through which that creation occurred. For instance, John chapter 1, verse 3, talking about Jesus. Through him, through Jesus, all things were made. Nothing was made that has been made without him. And Colossians chapter 1, verse 16. For in him, speaking of Jesus, all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authority, all things have been created through him and for him. Jesus created the universe. He reflects the glory of God. The sun is the radiance of God's glory. Now, think about, when you think about the word radiance, think about the word brightness. Think about rays that emanate from something incredibly bright. Some, the rays that shine forth from a source of light. You know, like in the morning when you wake up and you turn on the light. <laughs> Have you ever, like, on a really, really bright sunny day, made the mistake of looking right into the sun? <laughs> or trying to from 92 million miles away? This is the idea of this is what we're seeing in Jesus, the the brightness of God's glory. Now, God's people in the Old Testament viewed the glory of God as a visible and outward expression of the majestic presence of God. So, for instance, when he gave the law at Sinai, Mount Sinai, uh, the glory of the Lord settled on that mountain or Uh, The glory was manifest at the tent of meeting and the Ark of the Covenant. And what the writer here is saying, this same brightness, this same glory beamed out in the person of Jesus Christ, who is the radiance of God's glory. He bears the stamp of God's nature. He is the exact representation of his being. The sense of this word uh, is that of like a facsimile or a, a stamp. It's an exact copy or a reproduction of something. So in that day, when, when you printed something or when you engraved it uh, with a stamp, it, you would have the exact representation of the original. And that's what this is saying. F.F. F. Bruce says what God essentially is, is made manifest in Christ. To see Christ is to see what the Father is like. So Jesus is divine nature. You want to learn about God? You want to see God? Look at Jesus. He is the exact representation of his being. He sustains the universe. It says he sustains, sustaining all things by his powerful word. We read a couple of minutes ago in Colossians chapter 1 about Jesus. In verse 17, it continues by saying that Jesus is before him 
and by him all things hold together. Several weeks ago, Pastor Corey preached a sermon from Isaiah chapter 40, and he gave a great illustration. Do you remember? He was over here, and he had a bowl, and there was water there, and he was talking about how God was holding all of the, the seas in his hand, and he, and, he, and he held his hands out like this and said, God holds the waters in the palm of his hand. Do anybody remember that? You all remember that, right? Yeah. Every Jewish person living when Hebrews was written would believe that God was the one that was holding everything like this, right? And now the writer of the Hebrews says, Jesus sustains all things. In other words, it's Jesus' hands that are holding everything. He provided purification for sins. So... All, everything we've been learning so far, these are like cosmic, big, amazing things. And now it gets personal. Now the one who created everything, who's the exact representation and image of God, who's holding everything together, including us, made the decision to not only serve as a high priest and offer some other kind of sacrifice, but to become a sacrifice and forgive us of our sins in his own body. Doesn't talk about it much now, but the rest of Hebrews is going to talk a lot about that. And then he is seated at God's right hand. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. Again, think about Jesus versus the prophets. The prophets, (laughs) when when, when they were in God's presence, what did they do? Moses, take your shoes off because you're on holy ground, right? The prophets fell down on their faces. But Jesus doesn't need to fall down on his face before God the Father because he is equal to God the Father. And he is seated at the right hand of God the Father. And the priest in the Old Testament, they never sat down. Their work was not finished. So they kept standing But Jesus' work was finished, and when he was done, he sat down. His work was finished. Think about his words from the cross, and they referred to the forgiveness of sins. He said, it is finished. He sat down. Now, let's take a look one more time at this overall structure here. There's... Uh, chiasm is a literary term where you can, you, you do repetition and it builds towards the middle and emphasizes what's in the middle. This isn't strictly a, a, a completely identical chiasm, but there are a lot of similarities. So, so look, for instance, he's the heir of all things. He, this talks about his enthronement. And then at the end, he is at the right hand of God. That also talks about his enthronement. And then you move over from enthronement to action. He created the universe. He sustains the universe. And he purified sins. All of those are actions. So he's enthroned. He has these actions. And then the two in the middle reflects the glory of God and bears the stamp of God's nature. These both talk about his relation to God. This is who he is. 
In the Old Testament, there were three types of leaders, right, for God. There were prophets, there were priests, and there were, there were kings. That revelation was piecemeal. That revelation was incomplete. And now Jesus comes and Jesus fulfills all of these three offices. God, he is, he, the office of prophet, God has spoken his final word through him. The office of priest, he has purified our sins. And the office of king, he sat down at the right hand of God and is enthroned. So, how do we apply this today? This is, you know, we're starting at a high level, right? The writer of Hebrews starts pretty high. And he doesn't get practical yet, but the book, it's interesting, you'll see there there are these discourses that happen, and he'll talk about all these theological things, and then boom, a very practical section based on that. And then he'll go into some more theological things and boom there's a practical section and it it happens over and over well let's think about applying let's think about what would it be for us to live with a hebrews 1 mindset how would your life be different if you these truths about jesus if you didn't leave them here this morning but you had them with you on monday and tuesday and Wednesday, etc. This week, what, what what if you woke up with them in the morning? What if these were part of your work life and your recreation life and your family life? How would our how would our mindset change if we lived in Hebrews chapter one? I want to suggest four things, and the first one is worship. It's very possible for us to have a limited vision of Christ. And if we have a limited vision of Christ, we're going to have a limited vision of worship. And our worship is going to be based on our preferences, our desires, our styles, our experience, what we know. But if we really understand who it is that we are serving and worshiping and following, then in our personal worship every day, it will be different. And then when we come in on Sunday, it won't depend on who's singing or what they're singing or how many of them there are and how many instruments there are, we will, we will approach worship differently, right? Because we are not here to just do things for each other. We're here to, to be in God's presence. Worship, I think, is something that is affected by Hebrews 1 mindset. The way we respond to Scripture is definitely also affected. If, if these are His words... If this is the book that he has left us and he is the one who created the universe and is sustaining everything right now, that's going to affect how I view this book and how I respond to this book and how much attention I give to this book. I think another one is how we respond to temptation. We're all faced with temptation every day. We have different things that tempt us towards wrong and towards evil. And if this view of Christ is always with us in the moment of temptation, it can really help us and be different. 
And then finally, how we view the world without Christ. There are many, many people in our world without Christ. How do we look at them if we have this view of Christ? I think it will be affected. So Pastor Tim Keller said that his whole life was turned around by an illustration that a Sunday school teacher gave him in 1970. So think about that. Think about that. Our kids right now, something a a Sunday school teacher, one of our children's ministry teachers may teach them a truth that could change their whole life. That's pretty cool. So Tim Keller was in Sunday school and his teacher said this. He said, the teacher said, let's assume that the distance between the earth and the sun was reduced to the thickness of this sheet of paper. Because it's 92 million miles, right? So 92 million miles is this thick, if you can see how thick that is. (laughs) If that is the case, then the distance between the earth and the nearest star would be a stack of papers 70 feet high. And the diameter of the galaxy would be a stack of papers 310 miles high. And then the teacher added, the galaxy is just a speck of dust in the universe, yet Jesus holds the universe together by the word of his power. And finally, the teacher said, now... Is this the kind of person that you ask into your life to be your assistant? Revelation given through Jesus is superior because it is climactic and complete. Thanks again for joining us today from Harvest Community Church. This podcast is also available on our website, harvestcharlotte.com. Please go there if you want to send a question or comment, learn more about our ministries, or find out how you can donate to support the podcast.